Let me uh, begin by, so I left the, the thing open and hopefully we'll have people including uh, Ben joining us as we go along. Uh, so uh, he can he can jump in. I think we're ready to go. We talked about this beforehand, so I can fly without him if he's not here. But let me introduce everybody. Um, the the guests that we have today for this this uh, show include um, on my screen to my left, Mitch Steele, who is a long time, super long time veteran of brewing in America. Uh, worked for Anheuser Busch. I think you worked for a, a brew pub before Anheuser Busch. Is that right? I did, yeah, yeah, in Hollister, California. There you go. And then uh, famously at Stone Brewing before going to Atlanta on the opposite coast to start New Realm. And um, we looked at it up 2012. So now, <laughs> now 11 years ago, he wrote the IPA book. So he literally <laughs> wrote the book on IPA. So we got a good guy here for that. Um, next up, we have Vinny Schlerzo, uh, founding brewer at Russian River, where I guess, I, actually, there was that whole Corbell connection, which I don't understand so well. But anyway, he's the maestro at Russian River now. Uh, and uh, I think you're probably one of the, the most well-known folks related to brewing uh, hoppy beers in America. Of course, you brew Blind Pig and the Plinese. So um, I think everybody probably knows you. Uh, those of us on the West Coast have a better chance of having actually tasted those beers, but um, they're pretty famous even if you haven't tasted them. And finally, we have Noah Bissell, who is out in the other Portland, uh, Portland, Maine. And he is uh, one half of a team that started a kind of uh, modern style of brewing that we're going to hear about, uh, which we hope um, to unfold as we talk about this, this whole uh, question of what are myth and what are not myth, we really want to talk to somebody who is on the East Coast who knows something about hazy beers. Hmm. This is curious. Walk up. Uh, does anyone know how to boot people? You should seems like up right now. They seem like they belong here. <laughs> uh, let's see here. What are you fucking saying right now? Sorry, guys. Hey, guys, what's up? Hey, guys. Make sure to drop a like in today's video. We're here to Okay, sorry about that. Uh, this would be why it would be great if Ben was here, so he could help me out with that stuff. But we'll we'll carry on. Uh, anyway, Noah Noah Hi founded guys. Uh, Hi. Bissell Brothers, which is one of these breweries. Um, actually, you're wrong. That uh, my name is Molesters. Oh God. <laughs> uh, we we had talked about doing a. We talked about doing signups for this, but we weren't really sure how to do that. So uh, anyway, we'll maybe figure that out in the future. Noah founded a, one of these breweries on the East Coast that uh, helped revolutionize brewing in the modern era. And we're gonna hear about him as we get going. So let's get started. Uh, and I wanna hear a little bit about uh, the history 
that all three of you have in brewing, you, you kind of have slightly different versions of uh, your, your take on all of this. Um, and both Vinny and Mitch have had a longer history, but Noah has a kind of on the ground sense of what was going on in New England. So let's hear all, from all three of you about how uh, IPAs developed in your experience as a brewer, um, more in the sense of the flavor notes and, and you know, like culturally how it developed uh, rather than the technical side. Um, when did you first encounter IPAs? How did you first understand them? Uh, as they, as you brewed over time, um, how did they evolve? Give us an overview, just as a way of getting the conversation started. And Mitch, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. So I was um, uh, brewing at a little brewery in Hollister, <laughs> California, which, uh, if you don't know, it's it's about 45 miles south of San Jose, California, and just inland from Monterey. And we were doing English style ales and we started in 1988. And, um, you know, during that time, I was I was really enthusiastic about the potential of craft beer. And I was going to a lot of beer festivals in the Bay Area. And that's where I had uh, IPAs for the first time. Now, I had had Celebration Ale and I had had Liberty Ale um, and <clears throat> certainly appreciated the intense hop flavor and aromatic and that hop profile in those beers, you know, that were, you know, Cascade Centennial focused, um, what we now call IPAs, even though they, they weren't called IPAs at the time. But I remember in the 1980s going to some beer festivals and, and a couple of the beers that really stood out for me as far as IPAs were Rubicon out of San Sacramento. And then also Triple Rock had a really good IPA back then. And Anderson Valley uh, may have come a little bit later. I'm not sure. But, you know, I, so I became a fan of the style just because I really like hop aromatics. And I could never brew one at, or at, uh, at San Andreas because Bill Millar, who owns San Andreas, wanted to keep everything below 5% alcohol and really make everything sessionable. And, and um, you know, so I, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, you know, I, I wanted to brew one and I, I couldn't. And, and then of course I joined Anheuser-Busch and I was traveling around the country and, you know, I go to uh, Boston and uh, Harpoon IPA was everywhere in the early nineties in Boston. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is absolutely amazing. And, and so again, as a frustrated IPA brewer at Anheuser-Busch, I, I, you know, I started home brewing again when I was there and, and started brewing a lot of IPA, but it was, it's been interesting to see, you know, since the eighties, you know, it was a novelty beer in the eighties and, in the 90s, it really started becoming a, a real beer style, in my opinion, you know, where people were using or, or brewing these beers on a regular basis. Um, and then, of course, it just took off from there. Um, and, you know, I, in Anheuser-Busch, I brewed a pilot batch of IPA because I had slots in the pilot brewery schedule and, and we did one and it was super popular and the marketing team at Anheuser-Busch didn't want anything to do with it, you know? So, so again, I, I just waited for my opportunity and, uh, you know, got that when I made the move to Stone. And when you were moving to Stone, it was, uh, it was still during San Diego's heyday. So will you give us a little taste of what San Diego IPAs were like when you arrived? 
Yeah, um, for sure. It, it was it was great. I mean, it, you know, and I, I had become a fan of Stone's beers um, in the early 2000s when I was working for Anheuser-Busch. I was living in New Hampshire and we would I had a group of friends that we were all homebrewers and we'd drive down to Massachusetts and grab, you know, Ruination IPA and and other other craft brewed IPAs. And, and so I became a big fan of Stone. Uh, when I got to San Diego, you know, there weren't that many breweries there. I mean, there were a lot, but, you know, by today's standards, it wasn't that many. And, uh, you know, I remember when I interviewed with Steve and Greg at Stone, they took me uh, uh, to a craft beer place, uh, Tom Nichols place in in San Diego. Um, O'Brien's, O'Brien's. Right? Yep. Yeah, thank you. Um, and- 46646 Convoy. I still know the address <laughs> from delivering there. and uh you know they had um they had pliny on and and they had uh duet from alpine on and so i drank one of each and i i was like okay i'm in i'm in the right place i (laughs) i love this um and Vinny, i I remember when i was with ab going to san diego on some marketing junket in the 90s and going to Pizza Port in Solana Beach and having your beer yeah. and and then Tommy's beer there. And yeah. I, you know, top, and I was top so, 15, I think it was probably. Oh, I was yeah. so blown away. Yeah. Uh, two of the hoppiest beers I had ever had in my life. And this was probably <laughs> 1997. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is this is great. So when I got to Stone, I was just you know, like a kid in a candy store, um, you know, and there were a lot of good IPAs being brewed then, um, you know, in San Diego. And then, of course, you know, during my time at Stone, it just exploded all over. Um, but, you know, everybody was brewing these hoppy beers. There was talk of creating the San Diego IPA or style and all this kind of stuff that was really cool. But, um, you know, I I was just I was a very happy camper, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know, after years of not being able to do IPAs, I was brewing some of my favorite IPAs of all time. So it was a, it was a wonderful thing. I don't know if you remember, Mitch, I once shipped you a five gallon keg to AB for you and your homebrew buddies. Uh, <laughs> I do remember. Yeah. I do remember. That was for a Christmas oh, party. No, I remember that, dog. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> oh, they're back. Um, yeah, it's um, I, yeah, and thank you again. I mean, <laughs> we did. Um, uh, I was in a brew homebrew club called Brew Free or Die, and a lot of the people in that club went on to brew professionally. And um, you know, we we hosted uh, Christmas parties and Super Bowl parties and things like that, and we could just stick the keg out in the snow, and it was awesome you know, back in New Hampshire, but, uh, yeah, Vinny was kind enough to send us some beer, uh, which was a huge hit. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, I was a, I was an IPA fan from a long time ago. Vinny, uh, moving to you, uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like in Northern California to contrast, uh, the San Diego influence was, was there a lot of, it sounds like based on the back and forth that you had, but there was quite a bit of communication between the two of you uh, and the, these two regions. But was there anything different about uh, San Diego versus Northern California? Yeah, actually, for me, and, and Mitch knows this, um, my background of brewing actually starts in Southern California in a town called Temecula, 
which is about an hour north from San Diego. And uh, I, I started homebrewing um, before that, though, in 1989 in San Diego. But from the beginning, I was always brewing what we, now we would call a West Coast IPA. Um, I can still remember going to the homebrew shop out in El Cajon in 1989 and buying a bag of hops that said CFJ90 that we now know became Centennial. There was another experimental hop, CFJ4, never knew what happened to it. Um, so I, I eventually opened Blind Pig Brewery in, in Southern California. And because we were so close to San Diego, and at the time there was only three breweries in San Diego, there was Carl Strauss, um, Callahan's, uh, and then the original pizza port in Solana Beach. Our uh, Blind Pig was always considered a, a San Diego brewery, even though we were the next county up. And uh, and that's where I first made a, you know, like a 90 BU measured IPA over the top, huge bitterness, low crystal malt, um, at six and a half percent or whatever it was. And then I made a double IPA as our inaugural beer. Um, some of those beers helped um, kind of form some of the early double IPAs that Greg and Steve made at Stone, which was really cool. And in fact, the first first commercial beer to ever be poured at Stone Brewery was actually a Blind Pig IPA because we were at the inaugural party at the Mattaway property, and uh, that was a, that was a fun party. So, but after a few years of making those beers in Temecula, uh, I sold my part in Blind Pig, and by that point, Natalie and I were married, and we moved to Northern California, got connected with Corbell, and helped start Russian River Brewery. And so we we actually didn't make an IPA in the first month or two, but shortly thereafter we did. Um, you know, at that point, there was, you know, a handful of breweries making IPAs. Um, I, I look back to a few early IPAs. Mitch already mentioned Rubicon in Sacramento that unfortunately is no longer around. Um, you know, I, I looked for West Coast style. I, I look at Swami's down at Pete Support was another one. And then the Blind Pig IPA I made were early ones. But I think I think you even have to go back before that and talk about like Ballantine IPA all across America, which I think Mitch wrote about in his book and yep. using like bullion and probably brewer's gold and maybe cluster later on so anyways um so for for a long time like we were one of the few breweries in northern california anderson valley was making an ipa rubicon was still around but it was still just kind of growing slowly and um and, and but but you definitely saw more of the west coast influence happening and things were becoming less and less crystal malt driven um you know they they didn't have that heavy sweetness and and fullness from the crystal malt or carapils malt and i think that's a huge distinguishing factor when you look at the early days of ipa but they were definitely on the more uh, bitter side whereas now they're definitely on the more aromatic side and definitely you know there was the things that we would consider to be hoppy back then or, or downright pedestrian now. And a great example is um, we just rebrewed our inaugural ale, which was my very first recipe of Blind Pig, which is technically considered the first ever double IPA. And we brew it every so often on our pilot brewery. I, I was actually on a evolution of IPA panel at the Firestone Walker Festival last week, and I wanted to have that, and we poured in. And it's funny because the consumers here, we poured through nine kegs at both of our pubs in like three days. Yeah, which is, which, yeah, yeah. Which is quite a bit. Um, and so consumers are interested in seeing what it was like, what beers were like back in the day. But at the same time, like it was a pound per barrel dry hop, which is 
laughable yeah, now. That's why I say like we stop all production cuts and add more. Anyways, so that's that that to me is kind of the the vantage point that I've taken it I see from the early days into where we're at now. All right, we have uh thank you Vinny. We have uh Ben Edmonds with us who did what we call in my house pulling a Jeff, which is getting the day, the time wrong. I was, I could have sworn it was 5 p.m. Sorry guys, I'm very sorry <laughs> to see you all. Uh I I've only done that a million times, so I'm very sympathetic. <laughs> um Ben, we're going through and, and kind of getting a historical overview. Uh, we heard from Mitch first and then Vinny. And now I'd like to turn to you, Noah, because uh, you are in New England. And although <laughs> I think it was Mitch who name-checked Har Harpoon IPA, uh, New England is not actually known for IPAs and, and hasn't been known for IPAs until the second decade of this century, I think. So can you tell us when you were getting interested in beer and kind of coming into it, like how did you find out about IPAs and tell us what was happening in New England and, and how, how that scene developed? Um, yeah, it's very funny here, Mitch and, and Vinny's stories, just because like I, their, their beers, or at least even the idea of their beers were sort of such a part of the framework I entered in. Um, yeah, thinking about it, I feel like, it, New England hadn't certainly become what it was, but IPAs were probably um, either at the peak or sort of uh, tail off of like the IBU wars when I, you know, became of drinking age. I, I remember specifically on my 21st birthday, worked a shift at a restaurant. I was staying at my my girlfriend, now wife's uh, mother's house. But so I bought beer that day to drink after my shift, like a mixed six pack. And I, I remember hitting a ruination for the first time and uh, it just mind being blown because certainly there was nothing. I, I can't remember Stone's distro was just limited in Maine or, or what, but I literally had had nothing like that at that time. And then um, kind of move springing past that. Uh, Smutty Nose Finest Kind was probably like the single most influential beer for me. I think that it, it even in local conversation seems to just not get the love that it deserves. But it was it uh, usually had sort of like this dusty uh, sediment quality to it that a was just uh, aesthetically unique. But I, I think it it was sort of it, to me always the sub style. And I've never had hit an IPA quite it like everyone says, like, oh, it's it's changed. And, you know, I hate to be that guy, but um, uh, aesthetically, if nothing else, it is is physically a different beer. But yeah, that beer was absolutely huge for me for uh, like college and, and laying the, laying the framework. Um, and then as the idea of like, okay, we want to do a brewery happened. Um, my first trip to Vermont, which we had just uh, finished up all our financing for the business, which was a really Herculean task for me and my brother, uh, just like a lot of small investments and the bank, just a lot of meetings, which I was not accustomed to at all at that point. So as a small little celebration, we just did a night in Waterbury. Um, at that point, uh, the Alchemist was still its original location. Um, and waiting in line for, for Hetty at that spot was also just like an experience unlike anything I had ever had. Um, first time tasting Edward, so this would have been, I guess, in summer of 2013 for context. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think retrospectively, I came into Beard at a very fortuitous time for myself. Um, but also, uh, just like even from the course of when I started drinking beer to when the brewery opened, the context of IPA changed so much over those two years, I feel like. Mitch, I remember uh, specifically pre-ordering your book because that would have come at about a year before we we opened. Um, and it's, it A, I think, I, I feel like it was written in a way that was sort of trying to, as, as best you could, not necessarily be like the farmer's almanac, but understand like you were living in the same world I was, where how rapidly things were changing. Um, but yeah, that just for timeline wise, that's sort of another benchmark for me that, that um, yeah, 2012, that just that time. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm trying to keep myself contained because there's a lot to a <laughs> lot of influences, but yeah, gotta shout out finest kind for sure locally. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a beer I haven't heard of. Um, oh. uh, so I think to to get into some of the myth busting, when Ben and I were talking about this, you know, there's the sort of idea that uh, if you if you ask people what the the narrative of IPA is, they it goes something like this, like. First, IPAs were born on the West Coast, and they were incredibly bitter, uh, and they didn't have a lot of aromatics or juiciness, and that's how they made them on the West Coast. They were dry, um, very bitter, and then around 2011 or something, uh, the Alchemist released Heady Topper, Topper, and we had hazy IPAs, and they were all juicy and all aromatics, and they didn't have any bitterness, and then that changed the way we think about uh, beer, and then that changed IPAs permanently. And I think in my experience as a writer and, and, and somebody who's traveled around the country, that always struck me as incredibly simplistic uh, kind of description of how all that stuff happened. Because long before people on the East Coast started making IPAs, they were pretty aromatic and pretty juicy out here. And uh, when I go to the East Coast, I find that a lot of hazies, including Noah's, are pretty bitter too. So you're you're already seeing kind of a blend of stuff going on. So if we're going to myth bust a little bit, um, why don't we, Ben, do you, do you have a place you want to start with this or should I just bomb in here? I want to give you a chance since you've been gone. All right. Uh, I would, I'd like to start with, let's start with Vinny maybe on this because I think that the first question is, and, and Mitch too, at what point in the kind of arc of IPA development do you guys think that you started moving away from bitterness as a driving, mm. the driving force? Obviously, I think lots of people talk about a Roman flavor before this, but where you started to ask the question, like, maybe if we drop bitterness, really kind of don't focus on bitterness, it becomes a different form of IPA. And then talk, then we can maybe talk about the kind of the, the, bi-coastal transition there? I, I think for uh, for me and, and using Pliny, it's always been a bitter beer, but it's it was never as bitter as a lot of our friends in the industry. Um, it certainly wasn't as bitter as like Ruination or some of the beers that uh, Tommy and Jeff Bagby were making it at Pizza Port, you know, a couple of friends down in that, that area. So we've we've always had a focus on bitterness and and Pliny's not any less bitter than it was. Um and and I think the the big myth that that we could 
kind of break here, at least for our beer, was that we've always backcharged at, you know, a pound per barrel or more in the Whirlpool um, to get a lot of, of aroma and flavor. Um, I think where we have changed recently is that we've now taken some of those mid-boil additions and shifted them farther back to get a little more of that, you know, that bigger hop note on the back end and, you know, taking a page out of the hazy IPA brewers or, or whatnot. But um, so I don't know that we've ever stopped looking at bitterness because, because actually for a long time, I, I think there has been a bit of an assault on bitterness and, and you've, I've heard a lot of younger breweries say, oh, well, I, I don't like bitterness and they've, they pulled back too much. And um, I've, I've only had Noah's beers a couple times, but I, I do remember them having like a nice clean, firm bitterness. And, and that to me is the big difference is the difference between a lot of bitterness and clean bitterness and and a, a nice hazy IPA, I think is is gonna have a nice bitterness to it. And it's what a lot of hazy IPAs are missing, in my opinion, is that they're missing that that nice crisp bitterness and they just end up being cloying and and heavy and sweet. So um that's 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 kind of my take on it, Ben. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just to chime in here. So, you know, in my 10 years at Stone, you know, just about everything we brewed was bitter. Um, that was just kind of a hallmark of, of what we were doing. Um, <clears throat> you know, but as we we brewed, you know, anniversary beers and special releases and even Enjoy by IPA and some of those those newer versions, we dialed it back just a little bit. It wasn't a real conscious thing. It wasn't something that we talked about, you know, uh, a lot. It's just, you know, the beers kind of evolved that way naturally. Um, I think really when I started looking at bitterness differently was when I went to New Realm in Atlanta. And we, one of our very first beers uh, was an IPA that was 70 plus IBUs, right? I was, I was brewing a beer like I brewed at Stone and, uh, the it it just the feedback on it was horrible right I, you know nobody in atlanta had ever had a fresh ipa that was 70 ibus and and <laughs> you know and i was my partners were just hammering me on this thing and i said look you you knew who you hired here right you know <laughs> but uh you know it, you know i know and so over the the five Plus years that we've been running New Realm, we've come out with a very wide range of IBU levels in our in our IPAs, and and I think you know to Vinny's point, it, you need to have a firm bitterness in an IPA. I think that's just defining the style, and you don't if you're brewing a you know a, a hazy juicy IPA, you don't want it to be cloyingly sweet. Um, but you know, I think right now we're brewing such a wide range of levels of bitterness. It, it keeps things very interesting and um you know it's it's been fun to to really see what the limits are the low limits and and the high limits there are there are a lot of beers out there that are labeled as ipas right now there are 25 30 ibus right and and to me that's just sacrilege you know it's it's and you know i'll i'll go 45 on an IPA, but I, you know, I really struggle if you start getting below 40 IBUs because then you're, you're getting into pale ale territory in my book. And I'll, and I'll just add too, real quick that, you know, because at Russian river, we have this 
pretty iconic brand in Pliny. We're not going to change it too much. Um, but we do develop new IPAs. Like Mitch said, he has a range of IPAs. Um, the one I'm drinking right now is Happy Hops because I, I know Ben likes this one of ours. And this is a lower IBU, more progressive style IPA, but it, you know it's still a clear IPA, but using all modern hops. So I think I think that's where breweries have the uh, conscious uh, decision to make a you know a few IPAs and have them be you know lightly bittered, heavily aromatic to more bitter like Pliny and still very aromatic. Mitch, can I uh, ask you while we're on this? You 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 know you raised the. The point of what was acceptable in Atlanta, what, what the expectation was. And probably if you go around the country, you're going to find a, a, an iconic IPA that kind of helped establish a regional palette. And I know Tropicalia is really a big deal in Atlanta. Um, you know, in those five years, have things changed? Do you think that there is a Southeast or, you know, a Southern approach to IPAs that's different than other regions uh, or a, pre a consumer preference? Is there anything there that you're noticing that's a little bit different from the, co the other? you know, the North Coast on the East side and, and the West Coast? Yeah, I think uh, Creature Comforts Tropicalia really kind of set the standard for for the Georgia Southeast area IPA. Um, you know, and if you haven't had that beer, it's, uh, it's very tropical in the hop aromatics. Uh, it's not super bitter. Uh, it's got bitterness, but it's not crazy bitter. I, I think it's a very moderate bitterness in it. Um, and I think that's what people gravitate towards. Um, you know, in our tap rooms, we get asked, uh, you know, what do you have that's hazy? You know, so that's that's been the number one question for several years. And that's starting to go away a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, if you look at the southeast in general, I think I think beers that use, you know, a lot of citra, um, you know, galaxy. Uh, you know, some of these hops that really provide more of that, uh, that passion fruit and, and type hop aromatic is, is really what, what floats the boat in the Southeast, uh, whether it's hazy or whether it's not. And um, yeah, it was, it was interesting, you know, uh, and Tropicalia is a great beer. It's, it's deservedly probably the number one IPA in Georgia. Um and, you know, a lot of that, when I first got to Georgia, it was very rare, you know, so if they'd ship five cases into the local uh, bottle shop, they'd be gone by that evening. You know, it was it was that kind of rarity that got people really excited about it. But now, you know, they've opened a, a new brewery and they're producing enough beer, but people still, you know, remember that that part of it. And I think, you know, looking back at, at what we came out with when we came out with a 70 IBU IPA that was dry hopped with Centennial and Simcoe, it didn't fit that mold. And I think that was part of our struggle. Yeah, interesting. Noah, uh, one thing that Ben and I were both really curious about is, so I, I spoke to John Kimmick for an article and he, he really talked about how when he was developing Hetty Topper, it was a pretty bitter beer. He was inspired by East Coast or by West Coast breweries. Um, and it is still pretty, you know, it's a pretty bitter beer. It, it doesn't track. And he even said, you know, by the time it became popular in New England, he was out of step with other hazy producers. <laughs> so when you get to the Trillium and the Treehouse kind of school. And Ben and I were really curious, like, what's the what's the missing link there? How did we go from Hetty Topper, which is a hazy, very tropical, you know, very aromatic, 
juicy beer, but quite, you know, pretty bitter and pretty dry to these other style kind of characteristic famous uh, hazy IPAs. What what are we missing there? How, it's really especially hard for us on the West Coast to know how you got from A to B or what looks like A to C or D. Jeff, can I chime in with one thing before Noah answers on that? Yeah. Which is that I think that if, I mean, per, from what you've told me about your conversations with John, he would be pretty quick to say that what he was trying to brew was relatively similar to West Coast IPA, but with a slight twist, right? It was not meant to be a complete swerve away from a rejection of West Coast IPA, but I think somehow then this missing link thing happens and we end up in a very different space from where Vinny and Mitch are brewing and where John is even brewing to where hazy IPA emerges as a distinct thing. Is that, would you say that's fair from what you've talked with John? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's an iconoclast, so if he were here, he would give us a five-minute uh, explanation of the nuances of that. But I think we can characterize it that way pretty well. Noah, what do you got? Um, so you're saying kind of like the from Hetty Topper to now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Hetty Topper to Treehouse, how did you get there? I think uh, the... To, it, from my vantage, it seems like the the next thing to say would be Hill Farmstead seems like kind of the a, a bit of a, a stepping stone. I mean, very um, really the first like version of what I think any, you know, any of us now would refer to as like a hazy, a hazy beer um, it was was from there for me. Um, bitterness is is present for sure at a, at a level like a lot of maybe um when some of us would be more unfavorable to now um where that really isn't a lever pulled at all um but certainly more restrained than most of the alchemist stuff but also there's there's a level of restraint in those in those beers that uh was still uh, to me felt excessive uh versus other things i'd have for sure excessive's not quite the right word but um it's close to the right word uh, because of sort of the newness uh, of, of the experience of a beer like that. Um, but I think in today's context could seem uh, like almost overly nuanced. So yeah, I, I think to, to, to put it on one place, that's sort of the through line to me. Um, but, but that's, yeah, just, just my perspective. I think we're going to come back to hazies because I'm really curious about them. Um, I'm, I am kind of curious about regionality. Ben, do you want to follow up on that at all before we get into regionality? No, go for it. I think that I think that was great. No, it's interesting to to hear that you you think that it went through uh, went through Hill Farmstead. It's a fascinating addition to the kind of narrative. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, do you have something to add there, Noah? Uh, no, nothing necessary. <laughs> so I'm curious. One, I think in, in that in that narrative that I think is pretty false, uh, where you hear people talk about this, the way that American IPA evolved, uh, they it it says and, and it's really a beer geek narrative. I don't think it's the, the narrative brewers tell each other, but uh, one of the things is it seems like beer geeks don't realize that brewers talk to each other. <laughs> uh, that they just sit at their brewery and do their own thing and then, you know, uh, whatever they do is completely uninfluenced by each other. So I'm kind of curious, and this is just a, sort of an open question to all three of you, what sort of dialogue was going back and forth in the mid the mid 
2010s, you know, around 2015 as juiciness was happening because it, it was not just happening on the East Coast. It was definitely happening all over the country. Um, but hazies were coming online, you know, 2015, 2016 and taking the world over by storm. So I'm, I'm just sort of curious, like, what, how, how did those discussions happen among brewers? What, what were we as consumers missing about that dialogue that was happening? And I, if, if I could just, um, uh, as Mitch, Mitch and Vinny, I, I would love to hear, as I'm sure you'll get into the perspective of brewers that had brewed IPAs uh, a certain way for, um, yeah, what those discussions were like internally of like, what's what's compromising, where we want to go with, or what's, yeah, you know. You know, I I, I think it, it, that's a great question because, um you know, when I remember getting interviewed, uh, you know, in my latter years at Stone and somebody was asking me to talk about juicy beers and I had no idea what they were talking about. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? But then, um, you know, some of the folks from from Treehouse Brewery asked me to taste their beer uh, in 2016 at the Philadelphia Craft Brewers Conference. And they were telling me a little bit about what they were doing and you know, and I'm like, and, and honestly, I was I was a bit skeptical. Um, and I think people on the West Coast and at least in Southern uh, California were a bit skeptical about this staying powder of hazy IPAs. Um, you know, we had seen black IPAs come and go and we had seen white IPAs come and go and all these little offshoots. And 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 there was a, a, a contingent of brewers that felt like hazy IPA or juicy IPA was just another one of those subsets that was going to come and go pretty quickly. And obviously that was not the case. Um, you know, I remember people, uh, other brewers coming to me and say, are you brewing hazies? You know, and, and, and there was a contingent that said, I'm never going to do that. And if my owner asks me to do that, I'm going to leave and blah, 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 blah. And I've, I've never felt that way. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, we didn't start off brewing hazy IPAs in um, in New Realm in Atlanta in 20, um, 2017 was when we started brewing. And we realized pretty early on that that was a that was not a good move. And and so, you know, I had been out of brewing for almost two years at that point, just putting together this brewery and I had to learn how to brew them. And so I, I reached out to a bunch of people and said, what are you doing here? You know, how are you doing this? How are you getting stable haze? That, that was the big thing that we all talked about. You know, how do you get this haze to stay, you know, when you've got a big brewery and large fermenters with a lot of gravity forcing all the solid stuff down and all the haze down and everything. And it was really interesting because, you know, brewers that had been around for a while and had learned how to make great clear beers had to figure out how to do this. And I, I think the one thing that came out of it is we all realized that it's, you know, there was there were people that would accuse hazy IPA brewers of being lazy because the beers were hazy. And that wasn't the case. These, these things were radically different beers than what had been done before. And you had to have some technical expertise to actually accomplish it. Yeah, very interesting. Well, how about for you, Vinny? I'll I'll add that uh, one that yeah, I think the uh, whole hazy thing runs through um, Hill Farmstead. Um, his his beers were super soft, like you said, almost 
soft to the other side and still are to this day. I've known Sean for a long time. And so I, I think uh, he gets forgotten in the, the hazy conversation. But, you know, for for us, and, and, and I think it's a little different than Mitch and Noah is that we, we've always had this iconic beer, Pliny. I mean, ever since 2008, 2010, it's, it's been at this level of beer geekdom. And so we've always just focused on that. And so when a lot of our friends in the industry were starting to think about making hazy beers or, or whatnot, we just kept trucking along making Pliny the Elder and Blind Pig. And and it wasn't that we weren't paying attention because the one thing I did have going for us is that we were getting people from all over, not only the country, but the world visiting us. I mean, this was a time when we would have a line out the door every Friday, Saturday, Sunday for folks buying 12 packs of Pliny. And it's it's honestly what allowed us to build our our beautiful dream brewery um, that Ben was actually just down at a couple of weeks ago for, for an event here. And and so, but I was getting all these beers, like beer enthusiasts would bring me. Um, I was friends with John, so I was getting Hetty Topper. We traded all the time, um, but I was getting Treehouse and Trillium and and Hill Farmstead, even though, you know, I knew Sean and whatnot. But so that we were just getting people coming in, gifting us these beers, you know. And so, so I did get to taste them, but we didn't really have to jump on the uh, hazy, bandwagon as many west coast ipa brewers would call it and and to mitch's point and this is um a bit of a sad commentary there are still breweries out here on the west coast that won't brew hazy beer i mean i i know of some down in san diego that that still won't brew hazy beer and and you know for me it was a super super hard style to wrap my arms around because like Mitch said, it's tough to make beer stay hazy. It's not easy. I mean, we still have batches every once in a while. That's like, it, it's, how did it fall clear? And, you know, it's, and, and yet the batch before we did everything the same was hazy. So I was, I, I, for one at that time, we kept brewing Pliny, but I was super intrigued by it, knowing that eventually I would probably brew something. And I went to folks like Jason Perkins at Allegash and started asking them, how do you keep your, <laughs> you know, Allegash white hazy? I know Matt Brennelson went to his German friends. How do you keep your German wheat beers hazy beyond just yeast? Because the hazy beers are still being centrifuged. Are, um, the beer we and make. Jason Perkins will only answer with the finger test, which isn't that helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You should probably explain what that is. Um, uh, talking to their sort of famous way to make sure Allagash's haze level was just right was they had uh, basically like a landing pad and a light. So the the environment was the same and you'd put a put a bottle of white there and if you could see your finger uh, through the bottle uh, in that environment, or, or it was basically too clear. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, one, one other thing on that communication, Jeff, is that there was a lot of the early hazy IPA brewers that weren't so forthcoming with their information. And I remember Mitch and I having this conversation and, uh, and it's, so you'd sometimes have to, comb through some of the industry, you know, folks to find someone who was willing to 
give you uh, uh, some nuggets of information. I mean, we we now know so much more about hazy IPA through academia, but at the time, it it was a bit like voodoo science. Ben, I got to throw this to you because you're in our in our we have we have four corners here, but you're our our northwest corner. So, uh, you know, let let's throw this question to you. What what were you when you were doing? You know, you you were well known for. Uh, Oregon IPAs, which are a little bit different than West Coast San Diego IPAs. They're a little bit hazier. They're a little bit softer. They're a little bit juicier to begin with. Um, but which is one reason why I, as a writer, is one of, to my great shame when people were talking about hazy IPAs. Oregon beer has always been hazy, so I didn't understand what they were talking about. Ben, <laughs> what was going on in Oregon? What was your dialogue with other breweries as this this thing was this wave was rolling our way? I'll sort of, I'll answer that a little bit indirectly. It's actually, it's honestly, despite the fact that you and I met a couple of weeks ago to talk about questions for this, Jeff, I totally, until Mitch was just saying this, I forgot the fact that in 20, fall of 2013, Mitch, you and I ran into each other randomly at the Colonel Brewery in London. Remember that? And so... I do remember that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was sitting there and you just walked in with a few folks from Stone, it was great. And we had beers together. I, I think that there's this missing link here between around haze. Because when we're having those beers in London, you and I weren't talking about haze in those beers. They yeah. were hazy-ish, but they weren't like, un, they were unfiltered IPA, but they weren't murky, heavy sweet or big that were pulling in any way they're, they're and they were under bitter they were soft they were kind of that to noah's point that kind of hill farmstead type ipa and i think there was a lot of interest actually from progressive west coast brewers in what folks were doing i mean in that realm and the colonel being a good example out in the uk um mm -hmm. i mean i remember the first time i went to trillium in early 2015 and having those beers and haze was not the conversation at that point it was really about <laughs> Oh, what you know? You're really favoring these more fruit-forward, pineapple, tropical, hot profiles. So it, it's making me just think about like at what point we went from talking about kind of softening IPA and really kind of allowing a lot of people who were into the idea of um, or would who who would have come along with the idea of let's let's make these IPAs less bitter and really really focus on these techniques that are allowing us to push aroma and flavor. And then somehow the conversation really got focused on the aesthetics. And that's where, to Vinny's point, a lot of people started pushing back. They're like, well, that's not, that shouldn't look like, that's not how beer should look, right? Um, and yeah, I, I guess until just now, I hadn't really thought about the fact that really, I think a lot of people were, would have been on board with the hot flavor route that these, you know, whether it was, um, Hill Farmstead or Colonel or some or Alchemist or what lots of West Coast brewers were doing as well, but then got hung up on the aesthetic piece of it. So sorry if that doesn't quite answer what was happening in the Northwest, but it, that's just my trip down memory lane. No, that's you know, good. That's what we're here for. Uh, I think an important piece, though, that I want to ask all of you about is this is also the moment when these modern hop varieties are coming out, right? So your, your tool kit has really shifted. Um, you go from the classic citrusy, piney flavor palette of American hops to this inc incredible explosion in tropicality, and we're, we're starting to get into some really weird stuff. So um, how much did that, I, I'm just curious, 
how much the raw ingredients really changed the way you thought about IPAs? Um, I'll just uh, jump in just for just for a second because it I just for the context of when I came in was sort of the tail end of uh, the hop shortage of like I'm not sure what I was definitely not professional at the time the fire happened but. I was was uh, just listening to Can You Brew Like a Maniac, like doing all these clone recipes and getting familiarized with like how a pro brewer sort of thinks about recipe design. Um, I'm sure thanks to both of you <laughs> for uh, I and probably Ben even, um, but I'm not sure where the timelines in. But anyway, uh, and then you know by the time I got to realize like oh we're gonna need hop contracts, I had just like a, a stupid recipe at that time of like you know citra mosaic simcoe or something as the substance recipe this is like 2012 and then pretty much got laughed off the phone by the <laughs> by the rep I was like no no way dude um so for for me i came into it and to this day just because it is was sort of the the foundation of it uh substance which is our still about 60 65 percent of what we make um is a uh, falconer's flight driven beer <laughs> um which was sort of in this this weird in-between zone of you know lemonade out of lemons pr pretty much um but it had uh in terms of the profile delivers i feel like it kind of lives in as a bridge almost between a centennial uh of, of that class and then sort of a citra of of tomorrow but, but yeah i just wanted to throw that out there for for something uh contextual yeah thank you yeah i think um, uh, you know it's it stone when we started brewing with eldorado hops and i believe it was 2013 that kind of shifted things for us um, and we started looking at some of these newer hop varieties and, you know, you, you couldn't get, you know, to, to Noah's point, you know, I remember trying to get Citra back then and it was extremely difficult. And then we started branching out into New Zealand and Australian hops, uh, because we could get those and, mm. you know, we, we knew people and we could get those. And that's really where things kind of shifted for us at Stone. And then, you know, in, in, at New Realm, uh, you know, I wanted to have all of it, you know, and so I had, I had the Centennial Simcoe thing going on. And then I, I also had, uh, you know, our hazy IPA, uh, hazy, like a Fox is our number one selling beer and it's Azaka and Eldorado primarily. Um, mm. you know, and, and that was 2018 when we put that one together. So, you know, it, it's, you know, me being just kind of a fan of, of what hops can provide to beer and all the new varieties and everything. I, I lean into that pretty hard. Ben, you have any comments? Uh, you know, I'll just add that for us, um, again, going back to having this brand, this brand Pliny that was, well-known we were looking at we started looking at picking windows as as a really important part of a hop because and i the other you know brewers on the call know this now that you've got this like simcoe was for me the first variety that we figured this out and um and it's too bad alex isn't here because it's something that cls is like super focusing on with all of their hops and um and it was just random that i wore a cls hop hat today too but um but simcoe was that first variety that i think was really talked about and that if you pick simcoe early it's grapefruit within like a 10-day picking window and middle is pine and end is going to be 
pungent and dank. And if you get somewhere between early and middle, like say day four or five, you're going to have a little grapefruit, a little bit of pine. And so that's that's where, where we were really focusing on. And then, you know, it was probably in, well, Mosaic came out in 2000 and was an experimental in 2010. I remember being at the very first hop quality group tour of uh, Loftus or Peralt or maybe both and ended up getting a bale of it from Jason Peralt and using it and developing happy hops. And so that beer has always had that in it, but it wasn't until like 2015 that we really jumped in with like lots more mosaic and strata and, and those new aged hops and making more of a progressive IPA. So again, goes back to like creating new brands for us rather than, I mean, we're always tweaking our IPAs to keep up with, you know, where consumers are at, but while still keeping a brand identity. Yeah, for Pliny, it's always Simcoe focused. Vinny, I, I think Go about ahead. that question, uh, that that comment that Matt made at the retreat a couple of weeks about and relaying the quote from um, the head brewer at Thornbridge about with Mosaic, any any Muppet can make an IPA, right? <laughs> uh, now, it's so English. Yeah. I, it's funny, and I guess I'm just like, what? What do you think he actually means by that? I, I, I think the, and, and maybe this is derogatory and it's an insult to brewers that are just using mosaic and citra is that we owe a lot to the hot breeders. When, when I was on this panel the other day, a similar panel at the Firestone Walker Festival with Matt and a couple other brewers on the evolution of IPA that like, you know, the hot breeders don't get enough, um, you know, that a boy pat on the shoulder uh, for all the amazing hops that they've bred for us, whether it's, you know, someone like Ron Beetson in New Zealand or Jason Peralt or whoever the breeder is at, you know, Steiner, whatever, anybody. Um, because those hops like changed everything and they made it so easy to make IPA. And with a little bit of sanitation in your brewery and some decent hops, it's pretty easy to make IPA now. It's not that hard to make great IPA as long as you've got some good foundational brewing practices. And I, I think that's what that that is that any any Muppet can can make an IPA <laughs> using mosaic. Yeah, it's it's almost like I think about it like with vegetables. You're like, okay, like carrots are really, you know, they're user-friendly vegetables, right, in the kitchen. But if I start handing you sunchokes or, you know, an artichoke, like it's only, you know, there's a skill level that's assumed you have to have to be able to prepare and clean these. I just, I guess I'm, I don't know if I 100% believe it or not, but like it's, it's a, it's an interesting theory. And that's kind of what you're driving at with the new yeah. varietals question, right, Jeff? Yeah, a little bit. And I hate to contradict Vinny, but um, I think any consumer knows that we've, tasted a lot of IPAs out there and they're not all uniformly awesome. So it can't be as easy as you say. No, it's <laughs> not that easy, but you know, once you, once you have formed a foundational recipe and the truth is, and brewers on this call will, will know, know what I'm talking about. There are breweries out there that, that, you know, will put out uh, 50 different beer IPAs a year they're the exact same foundational malt bill, whatever. And, and they just move stuff around a little and maybe it's Stratus, Simcoe, Amarillo. Next time it's Simcoe, Mosaic, 
Nelson, whatever, that that's, there's a lot of that going on, you know, and then, you know, I mean, uh, there's breweries that have full-time artists on staff to make, to, to make, that are just cranking out can labels. And if you're in a state like California, where technically, if you sell all your beer in the state of California um, or a brand, whatever it is, you don't have to get federal label approval. So you don't have to go through the, you know, jumping through hoops like certain breweries do in some states. And so we, we make a lot of one-off beers um, and we don't have to get brand, you know, federal label approval. And, and thus you can just keep cranking out new labels. And, and to a degree, I think that's starting to slow down. I think consumers are wanting to see, you know, more consistency in a, in a brand, but there's still a lot of breweries doing that. And, you know, for me, I want to perfect a brand, never be able to perfect a beer, but let's keep rebrewing it and making it more often and then have a one-off line that we can learn from and then apply those, those things we learn to our regular beers. So I'm a little yeah. bit cognizant of time. Um, if you guys have a moment to stick around, I know uh, we have one, we have one question in the chat and I actually received some questions uh, via email before this from people who couldn't come. Um, so are you willing to take a few questions from the crowd? Of course. Yeah. Uh, let's start with uh, Max Coleman uh, in chat because I think this is a really nice question. Uh, Max is from Coleman Farms in Willamette Valley. Uh, when did uh, IPAs shift from hoppy, meaning bitter, to something more or else? Because we definitely, there was that moment where somebody realized, wait a minute, when you say hoppy, it can mean aromatics, it can mean flavor, it can mean a lot of things, not just bitterness. When 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 was that moment? That does seem like kind of an important moment. I, I don't know the year, but I would say that that has actually a lot to do with the whole hazy IPA movement, because that's when in, in the bigger picture, everything started becoming more flavorful of hops and, you know, flavor and aroma rather than just bitter. I don't know what the year is, but I would, I would tie it to wherever that time shift was, but that's, that's just my take. You know, Vinny, I'd also uh, credit the hop quality group with driving that, that yeah. philosophy. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, when you start talking about, I mean, you know, the whole IPA, you know, when IPAs, you know, when I got to Stone, we were doing five special releases a year. And when I left Stone, we were doing like 35, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the aromatic side of hoppy beers became very important to us because that was how you differentiated each beer that you were brewing. And I, I um, you know, and I think that whole focus with, with brewers hooking up with hop farmers and breeders and explaining that to them and, and, and tasting beers with them and talking about it, I think really drove a lot of that. Yeah. And then, you know, and you had like the, with the hop, we, we, we started a hop quality group in 2010. It was like seven or eight founding breweries and, um, it was pretty early on the first couple of years that we had Tom Nielsen from Sierra Nevada and Val Peacock, our hop consultant up in the Pacific Northwest uh, at Loftus and maybe one other farm. I can't remember like in the kilns and pulling samples from the bottom, the middle and the top, and then doing all this research and pretty much 
driving the entire industry to lower their kiln temperature. There was definitely a lot of farms that were already kilning in the 130, 135 Fahrenheit range, but most of the farms were at 145, 150. And so the push was to lower the kiln temperature to have more aromatics. That also then caused two issues. One, it probably did exacerbate hop creep, but it also, there's ways to work around that, but the, the hop industry needed to invest millions of dollars to, and, and Max can probably, yeah, he's shaking his head, can <laughs> attest to that, that, you know, to lower your kiln temperature meant they were going to add a couple hours more per, per kill bed. But at the same time, the hops weren't getting, they were like, I'm, I still need to be picked. They still, there is still an important picking window there. So the only way to get around this was to add more picking equipment, more harvesting, more kiln beds, so on and so forth. If you have questions, you can either put them in, in the, the chat or if you want to use the uh, uh, raise, uh, raise your hand thing. And if you go to the reactions, you can raise your hand and I can see that way too. Can um, I ask Noah that question about the, the Sam Adams question, Jeff? Absolutely. No, I'm interested as a as an East Coast brewer, your perspective on the fact that the the largest brewer, craft brewer on the East Coast, really stayed out of the IPA game, uh, really pretty much entirely until <laughs> what, 2014, 2015. Uh, this is kind of quackery, but how do you think East Coast IPA might have been different if Sam Adams had been making IPA that was really popular in in 2005, 2007? Wow, I've I've drank so much Sam Adams over the years and never that thought has never crossed my mind. Um, but it's it's so true as I'm racking my brain. Um uh I you know, crystal ball stuff, crystal ball, but I I feel like with harpoon being almost sort of filling that void, red hook kind of filling that void. I know that there's either Seattle or Portland. I'm not sure where the I know West Coasters have like Red Hook as I always think of it as in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, though. Um, but Red Hook, I, Long Hammer was like pretty. So I, I feel like it wouldn't have been that different. But who the hell am I to say? Ben, I'll just add that um, I do remember the beginning of the Hop Quality Group 2010. And Boston Beer was a founding member, I believe. But they were only buying German hops. So they <laughs> needed to learn about u.s hops because whatever their first ipa was called was going to be using u.s hops and so that was one of their internal initiatives was to learn about hops and you know and then and not only going to farms but then you know they were hanging out with folks from sierra firestone deschutes you know new glarus and so on and so forth russian river so yeah so you mentioned Nuclearis. That is a perfect segue to Mike B's question. Plenty of East-West discussion. Any comments about Midwest and Mountain West contributions to IPA development? I know none of you are in the Midwest, uh, Mountain West region, but um, you're very familiar with the industry, and I'm curious uh, what what you observed coming out of those or those regions. I, I think for the Midwest Mountain, you have to definitely point to Odell IPA. That to me was probably the most like formidable IPA coming out of that that area, and um, and they still make it. It's still an amazing beer. Um, you know, it's an old school 
West Coast style, a little bit of crystal malt, a little bit of color, at least last time I had it, but still like such a, a great beer that that they crafted and and can't be forgotten and still still a a, a part of their portfolio. I think you need to talk about Bell's Two Hearted as well, you know, which is uh, a centennial focused IPA. But uh, I mean, that beer, when I got to Atlanta, it was surprising that beer was everywhere. And that was because, you know, before Tropicalia became widely available in Atlanta, it was still very rare. Bell's Two Hearted filled that that gap and a very important beer in my mind. And at, and at New Glarus, um, Dan made what they they uh call moon man which in that and they it's like no coast ipa which is i love the marketing of it um <laughs> but dan dan and and deb have always been big pliny fans and so we would do beer trades we do a christmas party every year and we trade with breweries we've traded with ben and uh many others and um it's a lot of fun for our staff to try other people's beers and so we always new glarus is an, an always trade and they've been one of the trading breweries since the 2005 whenever we had our first employee party and and so they they, they had a fair amount of pliny so he made moon man as like a nod to pliny but lower alcohol because deb would always be like i can't drink pliny to be like two bottles of pliny it's it's eight percent alcohol <laughs> so it's honestly like to have like one of my brewing idols try to use one of our beers as a you know something to use as just a, a foundational part of the recipe was was very uh, humbling for sure so they they just kind of did their own thing just like they always do in wisconsin and they just created their own little style and it and it's ironic because dan and i still email about ipa today we are just emailing last week uh, about it or two weeks ago whatever it was and and i just sent him some pliny recently <laughs> very good we I, I still think of dan as an oregon guy because he was at jd northwest so we we claim him you know <laughs> <laughs> i'd just uh to, to close that loop i i definitely say at least for me um uh zombie dust was a I on a day I was working a shift at the a bar the bar I worked at before we opened the brewery. Someone from Chicago brought in uh, a a can of uh, Daisy Cutter and a bottle of Zombie Dust, and those were both like at that time uh, for me. Also, other those moments, Pete and I still I brought I held on to them and and you know scurried over to his apartment after my shift was over and we drank them together and still a moment we talk about is being like holy shit i did not know um probably one of the first like heavy heavy citra beers i'd had in, in zombie dust and yeah garrett uh braun asks uh india pale ale has come to encompass so many varieties and styles that truly don't fit uh within that baseline like cold ipas uh, which I understand are being brewed with lager yeast. Is it time to create a new nomenclature for divergent styles coming in the future? Uh, you can take that. Or you could also add as commercial breweries, does it drive you crazy when you have to invent, when you have to follow the trend and come up with a new cold IPA or, you know, the, these kinds of things? Like how, I'm curious about the, the, the producer side of that equation as well as the more general philosophical one. You know, um, so a couple of things about that. I remember, you know, after I really learned a lot about brewing hazy IPAs, I made a comment on social media that maybe they should 
be categorized as a new style. And I meant that as a compliment, you know, that they were just so different and radical and, and boy, I, I got, I got hammered. On really? That. Wow. Yeah, I, I really did. People just hated me saying that. And um, <laughs> I, I was like, well, you know, I was trying to be, you know, I think it's a compliment, you know, this is, this beer is so, it, there's so many things that are different from, you know, a New England IPA versus a West Coast IPA that maybe it merits its own style name. And and people just hated me for saying that, um, you know, so I backed off. I think, you know, you got to look at it from a producer side. Uh, number one, I'm if if I think the beer's style is legit and and is going to have some interest, I'm going to learn how to brew it. I love that. I, it, you know, that's just what what floats my boat. And um uh, as a as a brewer, I'm I'm very curious, and and you know if you talk to the marketing people at the breweries, you got to call it an IPA. You know, it, it's if you try to call it something different, if you it, you're gonna really struggle from the marketing and sales side. So you know, I have no problem calling a cold IPA an IPA. I think it it's it's an offshoot of an IPA, even though it's fermented with lager yeast and uses adjunct and and you know. It, those kind of things. I still think, you know, essentially anything that's really hop forward and hop pronounced and has a certain alcohol content, mm -hmm. I think it's an IPA it, it, these days, you know, even though it veers off of what we would think of traditional style definitions, you know, if you've got a hop forward beer and it's a certain alcohol content and, and really you talk about the hops and you think about the hops when you're drinking the beer, it's most likely some sort of IPA. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Mitch that it's, you know, it's, it's a terminology. It's what the, it's a nomenclature. It's what the consumer knows. Um, just as an example, um, we've made several beers, one-off beers that we've brewed on our big brew house here, packaged that have uh, rice IPAs that we've used rice in them. So taking a page out of the cold IPA book, but we've used our ale yeast, you know, and we're not going to, we're not going to make a new name for that. Let's just call it IPA. And we like the lightness that the adjuncts give. And we're just going to leave it at that and let the consumers enjoy the beer. Um, yeah, we've had mixed, mixed, uh, sometimes over, over trying to categorize uh, beer. Cause you, you know, you look up like, like most breweries, at least half the beers are going to be some iteration of, of IPA or, or hoppy beer. Um, so I feel like there is a natural instinct to want to subcategorize those, but a lot of times that's been, uh, turned people off more from the beers. Um, uh, one, one easy example is like, we have a, a rye heavy pale ale, um, hundred percent mosaic and, um, turns out getting rye off the name really, really helps sales of that beer, but it came from a place of just trying to make it stand out a little bit on our, our own draft board. <laughs> Huh, that's interesting. I know that beer. That's a good beer. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, we have a we have a question from Sam Pecoraro, who is a brewer in Portland at Von Eber. Uh, and I'm this is it it touches on a thing that I'm curious about too, which is um in, in the in this IPA family, this large IPA family that we're talking about, there's all these new hot products, uh, new techniques of getting juiciness. You know, you, you can talk about the hot products, but also things like Thialized yeast, um, just there's a lot of different stuff going on. And I'm curious what you as brewers 
Uh, are you are you excited about this? Does this feel like it's moving away from where you want to be in terms of uh, you know more familiar flavors, more familiar profiles? Is it a, you know a playground? What what do all these new uh, ingredient and products do to change the landscape for IPAs? I'll I'll start. I'm a big fan of them. Um, we're still trying to. We we've always used extract and let's just call what what they are like incognito spectrum ych702 which is now starting to be produced is their version of incognito and they have a more aromatic version as well that um is i'm not sure it's i don't think it's released yet but anyways so on and so forth those are just extracts that happen to be extracted most likely at a maybe different temperature, different pressure, um, and are, you're keeping the aromatics. So I'm I'm really enjoying playing with them, but we've used hop extract since 1998, 99 at, at Russian River. So this is just an extension of them, but they are super aromatic and and I'll, I'll call out a great San Diego brewer, um, Kelsey McNear at North Park Brewery for like, totally bucking the trend on what some of the the hop purveyors are saying this is how you should use it he's he's turning that on its head and i've taken his techniques and now applying it to a lot of pilot brews that we've done and we're going to uh, use his technique where he's using basically hot side high oil extracts on the cold side we're going to do a first batch at our pub our 20 barrel system uh this this weekend and then we have plans for something next year out of our big brewery. We're going to use his technique using hot side, high oil extracts on the cold side. So mm -hmm. we've, we've embraced it and I totally get where it's at. And once you've had like his beer and Ben, you and I were just discussing his beer when you were down here a couple of weeks ago for the brewer's retreat and just like they're magical from a, a West coast hoppy standpoint, but they have all that big, umptuous hop notes from a like a juicy you know hazy ipa that sounds good yeah I, I, yeah and i'll i'll echo vinnie's thoughts on on kelsey he's a fantastic brewer i love his beers um i you know i think i embrace all of it too i love it i i love thializing yeast i you know to me it's just Let's see what happens. They, you know, it's it's all about curiosity as a brewer for me. Sometimes things work and sometimes they don't work that well. But you know, I'm always learning something from it. We just we just came out with a, an IPA that I, it's what I'm drinking right now that it uses Star Party yeast and you know and just watching the flavor transformation during the fermentation. Uh, you know this this beer that we we're we're brewing. Uh, is a West Coast IPA in the brew house, and it turns into something completely different through the fermentation with all the files being released and everything. And I, you know, I just love that stuff with the caveat that it needs to make a great beer. As long as it makes a great beer, I'm all for all of it. You know, I, I just love it. And, it, and to me, that's what's driven craft beer over the 40 years that craft beer has been around is, you know, just trying things that are you know, out of the box and, and trying something new. And it's an incredible, exciting, incredibly exciting time for brewers because the hop 
producers are doing so much work with with a lot of these uh, pourable extracts and things. And then and now the yeast producers are doing a tremendous amount of work. It's just it just creates this huge range of things that you can do to make really interesting and delicious beers. I'm pretty much in the same camp. I'll, I'll keep it, keep it short and sweet. Uh, if there's any more, any more questions. Uh, well, I am interested. No, that's interesting. Uh, I'm, yeah, I, the, it feels to me like in, in many ways, hazy IPAs sort of emerged out of this first wave. And I'm, I, this is a kind of a follow-up actually. It's not really the same question, but um you guys used to be the 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 hip new kids who were all about experimentation i'm talking about new england brewers uh and us gang yeah yeah <laughs> you know you you guys were the ones who were ahead of everybody two steps ahead and and um you know now hazy ipa has been around a decade so do you feel like there's like a uh you need to also innovate but at the same time have a kind of fidelity to <laughs> Can we say traditional hazy ideas? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I very much understand your question. I think um, a lot of our decisions and stuff over time have been in one way or another sort of related to the the expectation of reverting to the mean in some way, shape, or form. Um, so, in essence, not investing a ton of resources in like, um, yeah, just sort of that... Um, never-ending appetite of experimentation of, of, you know, weekly new beers. We were never that brewery. Um, so I, I, honestly, I don't feel like our approach has changed that much over, over time. And I'm thankful to be in that position where I, I, it doesn't seem like as a company, we need to make a, a, a huge pivot to, to accommodate um, trends or, or whatever. And for going back to the product standpoint, I'm a, I think, any all those things are an inevitability of just any industry they're they're just things are going to get deeper and deeper into into how how can we play with these so i think they're not going away no matter what um i'm never the first person to jump on usually a new product um uh we out actually mitch just uh released a uh, star party beer that will be rebrewing a few times and um a couple months back um, but yeah, so so for timeline, you know, that beer, that yeast has probably been out for a year or so. We used it once in a collab, but we're not going to be the first ones to the party. And I looked at Scott Janish a lot, honestly, at Sapwood for um, usually having uh, uh, being able to articulate experiences with with new shit that I, I have not got my hands on yet in, in a way. So, yeah, shout out to him. Jeff, I think in a way that like in the beer industry now, I've used this analogy before that. And I, I come from the wine industry or breweries in the middle of, you know, Sonoma, Napa County, the most famous wine regions of America. And like IPA is now Chardonnay. It's and it's <laughs> like that's just like what it is. And it's probably it's not going to go anywhere. Chardonnay has been the top selling wine in America for decades. And, you know, and it takes someone like Kendall Jackson and Gallo to have big national brands and you know in the beer industry that's sierra nevada and new belgium and several other large craft breweries and and beyond and like but there's all these different iterations of chardonnay you can make it with a 
ton of ml you can make it with a you know new oak you could go oh you know like neutral oak you could go all stainless steel you now have wineries we were just at um uh with some some friends when they're out for the brewers retreat at a friend's winery and we were tasting barrel tasting with them and they were pouring us concrete chardonnay chardonnay that's been aged in the concrete tank so you've got innovation still happening in chardonnay i'll use concrete even though that's like going back to the old days of wineries used concrete tanks that's i think that's where we're at with with ipa and ipa is is and it in a way it might be derogatory to say it's the chardonnay of beer but it's a compliment because chardonnays had staying power in the wine industry and it's what's kept a lot of wineries in business and 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 you know yes there are wineries that don't make chardonnay but the average winery in california makes a chardonnay and i think you're going to see it still with ipa they're creeping up to oregon too uh, we don't want to turn this into a wine uh, conversation <laughs> but we're starting to see a lot more chardonnays in oregon than we used to um okay one last question going out because i think this and it's a great i think it's a fantastic like kind of where where do we go next? Uh, Phil Brandt points out that in here in Portland and in the Northwest, we're seeing a lot of um, bleed from uh, the hot the, the techniques that create great IPAs into lagers. He he's he cites specifically, but I could imagine other beer styles. And I'm wondering, as a writer, I'm always curious to see the cultural influence of beer. And like, if you go to if you go to Belgium and a Belgian tries to make a, a beer from another region, they often end up just making a Belgian beer, um, you know, because they have such a strong kind of sense of how beer should be made. And when I, when I try one of, uh, you know, these, these, these modern five and a half percent Pilsners that are saturated with Whirlpool and dry hop editions of New Zealand hops or, or whatever it is, uh, it feels to me like the that 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 American tradition is sort of expanding out from IPAs, and I'm I'm curious mm. where you guys think that is headed. And in fact, Mitch, actually, the last time when I was at uh, uh, New Realm, you mentioned that your Pilsner uh, has a Whirlpool edition, and I started asking brewers after I visited you, do you guys use a Whirlpool edition in your Pilsners? And I'm finding that a huge percentage of breweries in, in America use a Whirlpool edition. Um, so I'm just curious, how, how is this bleed happening into other, um, into other realms? And then we can wrap this up. Yeah, I think it's very prevalent. And I think, you know, IPA has a lot to do with it. People really appreciate hop aromatics. And, you know, if you're, if you're brewing a Pilsner, um, you know, if you're an IPA brewer brewing a Pilsner, uh, you're going to be looking for some hops, right? And, and um, I, you know, I'm enjoying it. I mean, you know, the, the whole Italian Pilsner thing, the dry hop Pilsner, um, uh, you know, it's got everything that's great about a Pilsner. And then it's got this added bonus of having some really nice floral hop aromatics to it. And um, to me, it's, that's just fantastic. I mean, you know, I'm, and I'll drink a, a traditional Pilsner all day long, but if I find uh, a nice hoppy one, I'm really ecstatic about it. And I, re I remember, uh, uh, you know, when I was at Stone, we used to distribute, uh, and I don't know if Stone still Stone Distributing still does or not, but um, Victory Prima Pils was on tap uh, all the time in the bistro in Stone and Escondido, and it became one of my favorite beers. 
And they were getting hop aromatics out of that beer that were so unlike IPA, but were so like IPA in some ways that it just was a fascinating beer for me. And I, I love where that's going. And I, I think, um, you know, as lagers continue to grow in popularity, I think we're going to see a lot more of it, uh, you know, a lot more of hop, hop forward lagers. I mean, not, not just India pale lagers and things like that, but real pilsners with, with intense hop character. I have, a, I have a couple thoughts there. One, uh, just to reverse it for a second, that now you have a lot of small breweries using Pilsner malt in their IPA. I mean, going like Kelsey, I know he uses all Weyermann, uh extra light premium pills, whatever it's called. It's Weyermann's lightest Pilsner malt. That's his like go-to malt for all his IPAs. So, and and I know of a lot of other breweries, and we keep a super sack of a Pilsner. We keep, you know, we have three three super sack stations, and one of them is is uh, for our loggers, but the other one is to make some lighter bodied IPAs. Um, you know, we're a production brewery, so we can't lean into it one hundred percent because of the cost. But um, you see a lot of IPAs being made with just Pilsner malt now, and that that color has become lighter and lighter, particularly from the early days when Mitch and I were brewing IPAs. You know, Blind Pig Stone in the early days of Russian River. Um, but I, I have a very like traditional approach to loggers in the sense that I don't, I won't put a New Zealand hop into a Pilsner, for example, <laughs> I don't have any problem with anyone doing it. It's, you know, it's not like the whole, I'll never brew a hazy IPA comment that a lot of brewers made, but I'm just a traditionalist and it's taken me a lot to, you know, like get beyond, Aramis was the one thing that we've always used in STS, our Pilsner, and that's a it's an Italian style pills for all intents and purposes. But going back to the West Coast IPA, or, or excuse me, like cold IPA comment, like we don't call it a, a an Italian Pilsner. And, and ironically, I just had Agostino from Birificio Italiano was here at the brewery yesterday because um, he he was in town for the Firestone Festival and like. It's just not something we we lean on to a style, but we make, you know, from a, a naming convention standpoint, but we make a, a, a haze, a, a, you know, Keller style Pilsner that's got this focus on Aramis, but Aramis was bred for Anheuser-Busch originally. It was something that Val Peacock was a part of. And when InBev bought AB, they decided they didn't want it. And so here's a Aramis is a super traditional you know, from a flavor standpoint, like German style hop, but it was going to, it's, it's more modern in that it had better growing conditions or whatnot. And Val was kind of left with his French hop growers telling him like, well, you told us to plant it. So help us sell it. And he went to craft breweries through the hop quality group and other friends, you know, in, in his area. And, and so there are still like super classic tasting hops smelling tasting hops that fit an old world uh beer and it doesn't have to be just new zealand hops or you know mosaic pilsner not there's anything wrong with it there's a there's a hop that is just gaining popularity right now a german hop called diamant and mitch do you know it and i don't know noah or ben no. 
it, I haven't brewed with it. I've heard of it. Yeah. And, and I, I got some from, I think it was from Dan Carey or someone. And I thought it was a new variety. And I asked Val and he's like, oh no, we bred that in like the early 2000s or even before that <laughs> and released it. And it just never took hold. And now it's catching popularity. It's like Aramis. It's, it's very modern in its flavor, but it's old world as well. Vinny, I think that, uh, that despite your claim to traditionalism, people would be pretty surprised to know how hop heavy, like the Saisons and Belgian Goldens are that you, like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. I mean, yeah. they're heavily whirlpooled beers, right? Yeah. To balance all that fruitiness of the yeast, the Belgian yeast. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would just say for, I'm so glad you mentioned Prima, uh, Mitch, cause that was, uh, basically our, our Pilsner's a clone pretty much my best version of a clone of prima <laughs> as uh from just information i could i could put together it's it's just middle for size but it's um yeah bit big whirlpool load and the difference is is so much uh um various boil additions that you know most of our ipas obviously would would never get yeah i'll second prima as being a early influential pilsner for me no not necessarily an italian style pilsner but really hoppy but done so classically well and uh great super awesome beer yeah well i think we should probably wrap this up you guys have been incredibly generous with your time and your insight uh this has been a fascinating conversation i expected if we convened you three uh it would be and you have not disappointed so thank you so much ben do you have anything going out I think I owe, you, I owe you guys another 17 minutes or so. So I'll just sit on the Zoom, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're in the penalty box. <laughs> Deser deservedly. Sorry about that again, y'all. This is, a, I, I'm, I'm excited to listen to the first 17 minutes. <laughs> There's a lot of Jason in it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We had a little bit of uh, a wild action there. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for the invite. This was great. It was great to meet yeah. all you. Yeah, it was really great to uh, have all of you and we will uh, post this video and I'll send the three of you a link as well. So you can great. do whatever you want. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate the invite. All right. Take care, yeah. guys. Have a great night. Bye. Cheers.